Um, I gotta, I gotta say that this whole day, last night included, has just been so great for me. And I know that Jeff and I have both been so blessed. Not only, um, you know, being a part of um, being able to share with you the word, but I mean, just being able to to just receive from you guys too, just the encouragement, and also to hear from the different people sharing for the word. And I'll tell you, this is this is really special for me. You know, as 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 someone who's um, ministry is to teach the Bible, to share the word. Um, I, I really treasure these opportunities that I get to travel to different places with friends. And because not only do we get to hang out and, uh, and just really encourage one another, but we get to also listen. And uh, I've been so blessed just listening to Jeff share the word this morning, listening to Brent share the word. And so I just want to, again, thank you, um, you know, Calvary Chapel and, and uh, Christ the King Church, you guys are such a huge blessing um, for us. So thank you for that. Well, this evening, um, I would love for all of us to turn to book number three in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, to the last chapter of the Gospel, Luke 24. And we're going to spend time looking at verses 13 through 35, but what I'd like to do is just start by reading one verse from Luke 24, and that's Luke 24:32. So let's all turn to Luke chapter 24, book number three, New Testament, um, last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, verse 32. And then after we read this, um, again, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to share a message tonight that I've entitled, Jesus Reignites Burned Out Hearts. Jesus reignites burned out hearts. So Luke 24, verse 32. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Love those words. Let's pray. Father, again tonight, we just want to ask you to um, lead us, guide us by your Holy Spirit, through your word and again just asking for clarity asking to hear your voice wanting to understand um, your heart for us tonight and I pray that for all of us that there would be something from our time together in the word and in worship that that will encourage us that will um, educate us that will establish us that will build us up And I pray that especially for those that might be here tonight just feeling a bit tired, just spiritually wasted and exhausted, or um, people that um, may feel like their their love for you or their desire to to serve you or even just the desire to live for you, um, it's just like smoking embers. Lord, we pray that your spirit will use your word again to fan into flame just a hot, bright, blazing, genuine love and passion for you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, in our last session here at the Refresh Conference, um, we turn our attention to the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to, as I mentioned, be looking at verses 13 through 35. And what I want us to understand at the beginning is Here in these verses, we see a Jesus encounter. 
a Jesus encounter. Now, Jesus encounters are real moments where Jesus touches and transforms real people with his grace and truth. And so here in Luke 24, we see an encounter that two people had with Jesus on the road to a village called Emmaus. And this is one of a series of encounters that people had with Jesus after he rose from the dead. You know, just a few weeks ago, we celebrated not only Good Friday, but Resurrection Sunday. And so there were encounters that people had post-resurrection, and this is one of those encounters. Now, we all understand from the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts that for 40 days, Jesus had presented himself alive to his disciples. And I like how Luke puts it in Acts 1-3, by many infallible or unmistakable proofs. Now, the reason why Jesus did that is because the resurrection of Jesus is a big deal, right? Christianity either stands or falls on this point. And so Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples were left with zero doubt about his resurrection. Remember, these would be the people that Jesus is going to send out into the world with the saving message about what? The risen Christ. So if these guys aren't convinced that Jesus really rose again from the dead, then their, merit, or then their message of the resurrection would just fall flat. So Jesus spent time with these guys to make sure that there was zero doubt that they knew and understood that Jesus was risen. He was alive. Now, speaking about the death of Jesus, we know that his death was verified. It was verified by the Roman government at the cross. They made sure that Jesus was dead. And so I bring that up because there is a, there's an opinion among some people that say, you know, the resurrection of Jesus was really a hoax because Jesus really never died. He simply fainted on the cross. And so it was mistaken when they buried him. They thought that he was a dead corpse, but really he was just a fainted body. And then three days there in the cool of the tomb, he was revived and somehow he single-handedly removed a two-ton stone and removed a guard unit of 16 soldiers and he limped along his way declaring to be resurrected. In universities, they teach that. They refer to it as the swoon theory. But his death was verified. Remember Joseph of Arimathea, he asked Pontius Pilate for the body of Jesus, and Pilate said, listen, I'm not going to give him to you as long as he's alive, and then he called for a Roman soldier, and he wanted verification that Jesus was really dead, and it was verified, right? One of the Roman soldiers took a spear and thrust it into the side of Jesus, and John was very clear to tell us that blood and water flowed out. It didn't pulsate out. Because if blood and water pulsated out, then his heart was still beating. But it flowed out because his heart wasn't beating. And the fact that blood and water was both distinguishable meant that Jesus had a ruptured heart. Listen, Jesus literally died of a broken heart. It was verified by the Roman government. And during these 40 days, his resurrection would be verified now by reliable eyewitnesses. In fact, we learn in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to over 500 people. And among these people, most were not expecting to see Jesus again, especially him risen and alive, right? 
And so the Bible uses the number 40. Remember, we talked about this today, that oftentimes the number 40 is used to represent a period of testing. And so during these 40 days post-resurrection, people had the time to test and verify that the resurrection appearances of Jesus were not just false rumors or hallucinations or a bad case of mistaken identity. People saw and they heard and they felt and they interacted with Jesus. There was no doubt about it. Jesus had risen from the dead and he was alive. And in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, it narrates one of those post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that happened during those 40 days. And in this story, it was a great story. In this story, we encounter Jesus. And we see his transforming power at work in real people. And we see that he reignites burned out hearts. And so let's see this Jesus encounter on the road to Emmaus. In verse 13, the story begins, Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. Now these two verses, they set the stage for the story that follows. Now, the gospel writer shines the spotlight on four details here. First, we're introduced to two characters. Now, Luke's gospel simply calls them two of them. Now, we learn two things about these two people in this story. First, they were disciples of Jesus. And you need to see the connection here. The words of them... In the verses that we just read, it connects these two with Jesus' disciples that were mentioned in the preceding verses in verses 8 through 12. So the disciples of Jesus that we read about in verses 8 through 12, that of them, these are the two people that are being talked about. They were disciples. Now, later in Luke 24, verse 18, he tells us the name of one of these two disciples. His name was Cleopas. Now, the other is unnamed. Now, people have offered their suggestions to who this unnamed person was, but in the end, we just don't know. But let me say this. There is for me, however, something special about God not identifying who this person was. Listen, we don't know if this person was a man or a woman. We don't know if this person was young or old. We don't know if this person was educated or uneducated. We don't know if this person was rich or, uh, or poor. And the reason why I'm encouraged by this is because what we do know about this person is that this individual loved Jesus and being unknown and unnamed, guys, we can imagine ourselves as being this person, Right? We can imagine ourselves as being this person, and we can insert ourselves into this story. And so I want to encourage you to do something. Tonight, instead of just watching this scene play out as a spectator, I want us to imagine ourselves being in it. 
Let's imagine ourselves as being this unnamed disciple in this story. Yes, this story is about their Jesus encounter, but listen, it can also be about our Jesus encounter because God wants each of us to experience a real Jesus encounter tonight. The second thing that we see is that these two disciples, one, we know his name was Cleopas, the other, unnamed, so I want you to imagine yourselves as being that disciple. But the second thing that Luke tells us is, number one, they were sad. We see that in verse 17. And then in verse 21, we see they were disappointed. And then in verses 22 through 24, we see they were bewildered. These two disciples, they were sad, they were disappointed, and they were bewildered. And maybe that describes you tonight. Or maybe that describes someone that you know tonight. But the second thing that we see, the second observation in the verses that we read, is that we see the time when this story happens. Luke tells us that the story happens on, quote, that same day. What is that same day? Well, when you read the whole context of Luke 24, we discover that that same day is Sunday. It's the third day since Jesus was crucified on a cross and buried in a tomb. And it's the same day that certain women went to the tomb and found it open and empty. And it was the same day that these same women claimed that angels told them that Jesus had risen and, it, and he was alive. And it's the same day that Simon Peter went to investigate the empty tomb. And we see all of this happening in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. It's on this same day that this story happens. The third observation we see here are not only the people and the time, but also the location. A location is mentioned. We meet these two disciples having left Jerusalem, and they were on the road to a village called Emmaus. Now, Luke tells us that Emmaus was located seven miles from Jerusalem. That's about 11 kilometers, and it was located west of Jerusalem. That means that Passover week had ended, the Sabbath was over, and listen, for these two disciples, there was no reason for these two to remain in Jerusalem one minute longer. It was time to leave. It was time to return home. Listen, one week earlier, everything looked different. Everything sounded different. One week earlier than this particular day, being in Jerusalem on Sunday was a hopeful and joyful occasion, right? One week earlier, Jesus rode into the city on a donkey, and people were waving palm branches and welcoming him with shouts of celebration, save now, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But on this Sunday, Jerusalem was a sad place for these two. It was full of disappointment. It was full of despair. And it was full of danger. And so for three days, Jesus' disciples were in a state of shock and deep sadness. And they were hiding from the Jewish authorities in fear of being arrested and possibly killed for being Jesus' followers. So you can imagine, for these two disciples, 
and try to put yourself in their situation, in their shoes, it was time to leave Jerusalem. It's time to return home. There was no reason for them to stay any longer there. And then the fourth observation we see is that we see and hear these two conversing with each other. Verse 14 says they talked together. Verse 15 says they conversed and reasoned. Now that word reasoned is really a strong word. It could also be translated they were debating. Have you ever been in a state of shock or sadness that you're trying to make sense of it? And in your conversations, it sounds more like a debate than it does like a rational talk. These guys were not only speaking with their minds, but they were also speaking with their emotions. I mean, they were all over the emotional map. They were all over the scale of emotion from sadness to sorrow and to even deeper, darker sadness yet. And the topic of discussion and debate was, quote, Luke tells us, all these things which had happened. Talking about the suffering, the death of Jesus. This includes the death of Jesus, the open tomb of Jesus, the missing body of Jesus, and report of certain women that claim that Jesus had risen from the dead and is alive. They weren't just talking, they were debating. And as they were talking out and debating out loud, trying to process and make sense of everything that just had happened, in this past few days, all of this was happening through the filter of sadness, disappointment, and bewilderment. But guys, the set is, or the stage is set. The stage is set. Now we see how this dramatic story unfolds, and here we now see the Jesus encounter. We read in verses 15 and 16, so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Listen, this is where the risen Jesus enters the story, and this is where when the story starts getting good. Jesus drew near and went with them. Mark chapter 16 verse 12 tells us that he appeared in a different form to two of his disciples who were walking from Jerusalem into the country. Now we know that Jesus rose from the dead with a physical resurrected body. Dr. Luke, Luke M.D., he verifies this in Luke 24, verses 36 through 43. This Jesus was not a ghost. He was not a spirit. He was a physical, literal, human, risen person. And though he still bore the nail prints in his hands, and though he still bore the spear mark in his side, Jesus no longer looked bruised and beaten. He no longer looked torn and tattered. He no longer looked like he did a few days earlier on the cross. He appeared in a different form. And notice that Jesus drew near to his disciples. Who's drawing near to who? It was Jesus drawing near to his disciples. You see, their hearts were broken, and Jesus drew near to them. Their faith was failing. And Jesus drew near to them. 
Their hope was gone. And Jesus drew near to them. They left the company of the other disciples in Jerusalem, and Jesus drew near to them. Listen, these two were not looking for Jesus, right? They were not looking for Jesus in their time of disappointment and despair, but Jesus came looking for them. And he drew near to them. And Jesus drew near to them in their darkest moment. And he is about to set their hearts on fire again. He's about to end their long, cold night of hopeless despair by causing the brilliant radiance of a renewed hope in the risen Christ to shine in their hearts again. Jesus drew near to them. And listen, Jesus is drawn near to you tonight, right now. He's with you right now under all the dark clouds of disappointment and despair, of lovelessness and loneliness, of chaos and confusion and faithlessness and failures and fears. No matter what state you might be in, you might have been living life not drawing near to Jesus, but Jesus has been coming to you. And tonight you're here because Jesus is drawing near to you. You might not know why you're here right now. But listen, Jesus is with you at this very moment. But then Luke brings up this interesting point. He says, but their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. The New Living Translation puts it this way, but God kept them from recognizing him. Jesus, I want you to listen to this. Jesus wanted to open the eyes of their hearts first before opening the eyes in their heads. He wanted them to first see him in the scriptures before recognizing him with human sight. Listen, seeing Jesus with human sight was only for a limited time. Jesus knew he was going back to heaven. After he rose again from the dead, Jesus knew he was only going to be on earth for another 40 days. And so whatever we put a value on with human sight, Jesus knew you only get this 40 more days. And then you're not going to see me again with your eyes until heaven. And yet, Jesus, we're going to see, also understands that seeing Jesus in the scriptures would bring him in plain view every day for the rest of their lives. Because you understand that seeing Jesus with the eyes of our hearts is more lasting and more rewarding and more real than seeing Jesus with our own human eyes. Because, guys, we can't trust our human sight, right? Like, how many of us have been the person who has either made accusations or have been the accused because of mistaken identity? How many times have we misunderstood what we saw and reached wrong conclusions? So the whole idea of, I'll believe it when I see it, guys, that's not reliable. Because what you see may not be your brain processing what you're seeing the right way. That's why there's hallucinations, mistaken identities, so Jesus reverts to something more reliable to human than human sight in order to establish our faith. He relies or he brings us to start trusting him by seeing him with spiritual sight. 
That's why Paul the Apostle, praying for the Ephesians, he says, listen, this is why I'm praying for you, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Because when we see Jesus like that, then when Jesus becomes foggy to us in the midst of all of our storms, we can still see him and trust him and follow him rather than get blindsided by our circumstances. And so that means that sometimes God restrains us from seeing those things we want to see most in order to teach us the things we need to know most. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. Let me say that again. Sometimes God restrains us from seeing those things that we want to see most in order to teach us the things that we need to know most We walk by faith, not by sight. And so in verse 17, and he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Now, Jesus does not just draw near. He engages them. And Jesus sees and hears their sadness. Now, again, let's keep in mind that Jesus is not detached and distant from our human experiences and emotions. He fully understands them and relates to us with empathy and compassion. Remember Isaiah 53 verse 3 calls Jesus a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knows what sadness looks like. He knows what sadness sounds like and feels like. And so the man of sorrows who died on the cross, and now the God of victory, the one who is victorious over the grave, comes to these guys because Jesus is about to transform their sadness to gladness. Now, in doing this, Jesus is not going to do it with happy, sappy cliches. Man, the church is just full of these happy, sappy cliches. It's like, people around us, their lives are falling apart, and we just give our Christianese, our little cliches, and basically giving them a pat on the back as as if everything's going to be better. Here's the Band-Aid. There's no empathy. There's no compassion. But Jesus is not going to deal with these guys this way, nor is he going to deal with their sadness with sentimental platitudes. He's not going to say, hey, everything's going to work out. Everything's going to be okay. He doesn't do any of that stuff, nor is he going to give them a motivational pep talk. You want to know why? Because sadness has to be dealt on a deeper level than this. Jesus will not simply put a band-aid on their sorrow. He's going to deal with the root cause of it. And Jesus will renew their faith and reignite hope in them by bringing to them a clear view of himself because that's what they needed. A clear view of Jesus through a clear understanding of God's word. And so verses 18 and 19, then one of those whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things which happened there these days? And I love verse 19, and Jesus said to them, what things? I'll tell you, this scene is classic. Of course Jesus knew all that happened because it all happened to him. Now, I can imagine Luke chuckling as he wrote this, right? I can imagine Theophilus letting out a short burst of laughter as he read this. 
You see, Cleopas assumed that Jesus was one of the many visitors who was in Jerusalem celebrating Passover week. I don't know if you guys have this show here, but do you guys have the program Undercover Boss? Like, this is the classic episode of Undercover Boss. Right? These guys are talking about Jesus to Jesus' face, and they have no idea that they're talking to Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, what things? Listen, Jesus didn't ask this question because he didn't know the answer to it. Obviously, he knew it. But instead, he asked it to move this conversation where it needed to go. Guys, when you're in debate, your points are all over the map. But Jesus then enters into that debate, into that conversation, and he asks a very specific question in order to move the conversation where it needed to go in order to show them the real cause of their despairing hearts. Because it's then that he can deal with those issues that need to be dealt with. Listen, here's the application. Too often, remember, try to imagine yourself as one of these two disciples. Too often we remain in the jail cell of sadness without having thought and talked it through with Jesus. Right? Like how often are we just brewing and stewing in our sadness and disappointment and frustration and we never talked it through with Jesus? We choose to stay there merely for emotional reasons. Jesus, however, wants to deal with the root cause of our sadness and rescue us from it, guys. He wants to renew our faith and to reignite our hearts with hope. And so he says, let's talk about it. What are the issues that you're dealing with right now? What are the issues that you're struggling with right now. Jesus here is showing up. He's drawn near to you, and he's saying, let's talk about it. Jesus would like to have this conversation with you tonight. And so in verses 19 through 24, so they said to him, now they're talking about it, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, now check this out, and certain women of our company, these disciples who arrived at the tomb early, astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive, and certain of those who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Guys, there's a a few things we can learn from these statements. First, these two were disappointed. Notice there in verse 21, they described their condition as we were hoping. Not not, they're not hoping, they were hoping. You see, they expected the Christ, the Messiah, to be a political liberator. Their hope was that King Jesus would liberate them from Roman rule, but instead he was crucified and died on a Roman cross. 
For them, the Jesus Chronicles ended with a surprise ending. It was over. There are no more chapters to this story. But not only were they disappointed, but they were also bewildered. In verse 22, we see that these two said, we were astonished at the reports that they heard. They astonished us. Listen, these two were skeptical of the resurrection reports. They weren't hoping. They lost hope. They'd given up on hope. And as a result of it, they were skeptical. There were reports of people encountering angels announcing that Jesus had risen from the dead. But for these two, you know what their conclusion was? Oh, it might have just been a vision. It wasn't, oh, well, they, they, they saw the messengers from God tell them that Jesus was alive. You know, as they were debating, you know what their conclusion was? Hey, yeah, did you hear how the women were saying? Yeah, you know what? It was probably just a vision. They heard reports that people went to Jesus' tomb and found it empty, but they didn't hear from any of them that they had seen Jesus risen and alive, right? So why would we assume that he rose again from the dead? All you're telling me is you went to the tomb and it was empty. Hey, there's a whole bunch of possibilities of what could have happened, but listen, because we're, we've lost all hope, it can't be that Jesus rose again from the dead. That was the kind of debate that was going on. These two were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. And I'll tell you what, this makes this con the conclusion of this story that much more powerful and meaningful. Want to know why? Because they had to believe in the resurrection of Jesus against their will. Because some people say, well, they saw and believed that Jesus rose again from the dead because they wanted it so badly that they hallucinated that they saw him. No, these guys, they were not in the place, according to the American Institute of Psychiatry, they were not in the place of seeing a hallucination of a risen Jesus because they were not hoping for it. They had to believe in the resurrection of Jesus against their own will which makes the conclusion of the story even more powerful. And so Jesus responds in verses 25 and 26, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, and in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. I want you to see how Jesus starts his response. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. The message paraphrases it this way. So thick-headed. So slow-hearted. Why can't you simply believe all that the prophets had said? Now notice that Jesus did not chide them for not believing the testimony of the women or the empty tomb. But instead, he chided them for not believing the testimony of Scripture. These two misinterpreted the Old Testament message about Christ. Therefore, they misunderstood the events that just happened to Jesus. Instead of rejoicing, they were sad. Instead of being hopeful, they were hopeless. 
Guys, listen, they were disappointed and they were frustrated and they were sad over things God never said would happen. They were disappointed and frustrated and and sad over things God never promised he would do. When did God ever say that that Christ would liberate Israel from Roman tyranny when he comes the first time? He never said that. When did God ever promise the crown without the cross? He never promised that. And yet these guys were were disappointed and frustrated and sad over things God never promised that he would ever do. Guys, application, we do the same thing too, right? We get frustrated and upset and disappointed with God over things he never said would happen, over things he never promised he would do. For example... How often do we get upset with God when he doesn't answer all of our why questions during the difficult times in life? Maybe you find yourself in that spot tonight. Stuff just happens. A lot of bad stuff. Broken stuff. Chaotic stuff. And we immediately go to God and we say, why God? Why, why, why? And God doesn't answer our questions. So what do we do? We get frustrated with him. We get mad with him. Question, when did God ever promise he would answer our why questions? There's nothing to be disappointed about. There's nothing to be disappointed over. There's nothing to be disappointed for. He never promised to answer our why questions in life. Instead, he says, trust me. And I will work this out for your good. In fact, when Jesus, God the Son, was on the cross, he asked the big why question, didn't he? My God, my God, why have you forsaken him? Do you remember how God responded to his son? Silence. And do you remember how Jesus responded to God's silence? In Psalm 22, 1,000 years before that moment was fulfilled, the prophecy was given that the Messiah would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Son of God would respond to the silence of the Father with these words, but you are holy and you are enthroned in the praises of your people. How did God incarnate, God who became very man, respond to God's silence when he asked the why question? He trusted and praised. While nails were pinned him to a Roman cross, while people were spitting at him and mocking him, he had a crown of thorns on his head, his beard was plucked out, his back was left in ribbons of flesh, and in order for him to breathe, he had to press down on the nails, rubbing his exposed nerves and sinews against the rough cut piece of wood, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God's response? And according to Psalm 22, then Jesus says, but you are holy. 
And you are enthroned in the praises of your people. He reminded himself of who God is. And he reminded himself of what God promised to do in and through his sufferings. And it's then he could say in Psalm 22, the Psalm of the Cross, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You see, God promised in the Old Testament that Christ would suffer and die on the cross. Then he will enter into his glory. Listen, everything happened just as God said it would. He did not let anybody down. There was no real cause for disappointment and despair here. Glory would follow suffering. The crown would follow the cross. It's time to rejoice, not be sad. It's time to be full of hope, not hopeless. Jesus had risen. Jesus is alive. But these guys, their hearts were misguided because the meaning of God's word was misunderstood and they needed something more than just a group hug. They needed the clear, sound, Jesus-focused exposition of God's word, and Jesus brought it. I don't know what you think you need right now to bandage your emotional pain and harm, but according to Jesus, as he's dealing with these people, he realizes what people need at the very most is a clear, Jesus-focused, verse-by-verse explanation of the scriptures and so in verse 27 and beginning at Moses and all the prophets he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself Moses and all the prophets refers to the Old Testament and Luke's gospel calls them the scriptures listen the Old Testament is the word of God And imagine being there, listening and learning from Jesus, teaching through the Old Testament Bible, showing himself in Genesis to Malachi. Jesus explained what the Old Testament says about his death and resurrection and ascension to heaven. He expounded the types, those shadows, those symbols of Christ in the Old Testament, such as the Passover lamb and the animal sacrifices and the brazen serpent in the wilderness. These are all about him. He expanded, expounded the prophecies about the Christ in the Old Testament, starting with Genesis 3.15. There is an estimated 300-plus prophecies about him from Genesis to Malachi. As Jesus is working from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, I could imagine that Jesus quoted from Psalm 41, verse 9. 1,000 years before Jesus came, it tells us that Jesus will be betrayed by a close friend. Zechariah eleven twelve, five hundred years before Jesus, tells us that the betrayer will do it for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 22, 1,000 years before Jesus and 500 years before crucifixion was invented, 
occupied by the Persians. And Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus, tells us that the Christ will be put to death by crucifixion. Psalm 34, 20, 1,000 years before Jesus, tells us that none of Christ's bones will be broken. Zechariah 12, 10, 500 years before Jesus, tells us that his side will be pierced. Isaiah 53, 9, 700 years before Jesus, tells us that Christ will be buried in a rich man's grave. Psalm 16, 10, 1,000 years before Jesus, tells us that Christ will rise from the dead. And Psalm 68, 18, 1,000 years before Jesus, tells us that Christ will ascend to heaven. Everything moved according to plan. And Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled all these prophecies and this proves that he is God's Messiah, the real Christ, the Savior of the world. Because listen, Christ is the centerpiece of the Bible. Jesus is in all the scriptures and this includes the Old Testament. So not only in the verses that we just read, in Luke 24, but also John 5, 39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures and these are they which testify of me. In Hebrews 10, 7, Christ said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. Guys, open up the Bible and you will find that Jesus is in every book of the Bible. And here Jesus opens up Genesis to Malachi and shows these two disciples, the Messiah in every book, in Genesis, Christ is the seed of the woman and the sacrificial lamb that God will provide on Mount Moriah. In Exodus, Christ is seen in the Passover lamb, the manna from heaven and the tabernacle. In Leviticus, Christ is seen in the offerings and the high priest. In Numbers, Christ is seen in the bronze serpent. In Deuteronomy, Christ is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, Christ is the commander of God's army. In Judges, Christ is the angel, the messenger of the Lord who appeared to Manoah and his wife. In Ruth, Christ is seen in Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, Christ is the root and the offspring of David and the rightful heir of the throne of David. In First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, Christ is he who is greater than Solomon. In Ezra, Christ is seen in Zerubbabel, the builder of God's house. In Nehemiah, Christ is seen in Nehemiah, the restorer of God's city and people. In Esther, Christ is seen in Mordecai, the one who stands in the gap for God's exiled people in the world. In Job, Christ is our ever living redeemer. In Psalms, Christ is our sacrifice, savior, shepherd, and king. In Proverbs, Christ is a source of God's wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, Christ is the true meaning of life. In the Song of Solomon, Christ is our bridegroom. In Isaiah, Christ is Israel's Messiah, suffering servant, and king of kings and lord of lords. In Jeremiah, Christ is the righteous branch and the Lord our righteousness. In Lamentations, Christ is seen in Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, Christ is a true shepherd who will feed and deliver his flock. In Daniel, Christ is the son of man and the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, Christ is seen in Hosea, the faithful husband. In Joel, Christ is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. In Amos, Christ is the burden bearer. In Obadiah, Christ is the mighty savior. In Jonah, Christ is seen in Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. In Micah, Christ is the everlasting ruler. In Nahum, Christ is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, Christ is God's anointed one and savior. In Zephaniah, Christ is the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Haggai, Christ is the greater glory who would visit the second temple. In Zechariah, Christ is Israel's Messiah who suffered at his first coming in the world and he will rule in power and glory when he returns and in Malachi Christ is the son of righteousness he is in every book of the Bible and J.C. Ryle the beloved English Anglican minister in the 1800s 
In 18, he was born in 1816, went to heaven in 1900. He said, quote, let it be a settled principle in our minds in reading the Bible that Christ is the central son, S-U-N, of the whole book. So long as we keep him in view, we shall never greatly err in our search for spiritual knowledge. Once losing sight of Christ, we shall find the whole Bible dark and full of difficulty. The key of Bible knowledge is Jesus Christ, end quote. God's word is about Jesus. And it takes us to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who rescues us from the pit of hopelessness and despair. And that is what Jesus did for them. And so in verse 28, then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. Listen, there is a whole other sermon contained in these verses which I don't have the time to get into. So I want to direct your attention to verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. God caused them to recognize the risen Jesus. Now earlier they saw Jesus in the scriptures with their hearts. Now they see Jesus face to face with their eyes. But notice as as quickly as that happened and he vanished from their sight. You see this isn't the only time that Jesus did this. He did this on different occasions at his post-resurrection appearances. Now, why did Jesus show up and then disappear? Show up, disappear. Show up, disappear. It's because Jesus wanted to teach his disciples that seeing him by faith is more reliable and more reassuring than seeing him with human eyes. By vanishing, human eyes could no longer see him, but the eyes of faith looking through the lens of Scripture can still see Jesus, even though we don't physically see or hear or feel him. Listen, when we're facing hard times and we don't feel Jesus near us and human sight and reasoning tells us Jesus left, and that you're all alone. Guys, this is faulty human seeing and reasoning. By faith, though, we see that Jesus is still with us, that Jesus will always be with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us because faith's sight through the lens of Scripture is 2020. We relate to Jesus by faith, not by sight. So here's my question. Do you see Jesus tonight? If you're having a tough time seeing Jesus through all the fog, through all the mist, then maybe you need to put the lens of Scripture back on, and then you can see him. Like, have you ever seen those, like, 
books, like when you look at it, it's just a whole bunch of jumbled colors. It's, it's kind of like polarized glasses, right? You know, they want to prove to you that your that the sunglasses that they want to sell you are polarized. So they give you like this card or they have you stare at a screen or a board and it just looks like jumbled colors. But then you put on the glasses that are polarized and you can see a fisherman in a boat catching fish. You take the glasses off, now you just see chaos, right? You look at that picture, all you see is chaos, but then you put the glasses back on, and now you see a man in a boat on the lake catching a fish. If you try to make sense of your hopelessness through humanism, psychology, psychiatry, Eastern religion, anything other than the lens of Scripture, now, I'm not saying that counseling is wrong. I'm not saying that psychology or any of that stuff is necessarily all wrong. I mean, there, there are biblical counselors, and, and the whole psychology or uh, psychiatry thing is just basically, you know, for them, there are people that love Jesus, but they went through school so that they can get a license. So if there is someone who legitimately has brain issues, they can prescribe to them medication. But they know that medication will never be the ultimate answer for a person's need of in sadness and hopelessness. The answer is always going to be Jesus, and the only way that we can point people to Jesus is through the scriptures. But why is it so hard and so difficult for people to understand this? Because every time people are in a state of sadness, they seem to run from scripture trying to find answers in everything and anything else. That's why coming to church is a big deal. A church that teaches the Bible because this is where we get to talk stuff out with Jesus and get some clarity to our everyday real-life situations and circumstances, seeing Jesus through the lens of Scripture. Now, as a result of this encounter, verse 32, And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scripture. I love this. These two felt spiritual heartburn. They felt sadness, disappointment, and bewilderment burn away. And now there is this ever-increasing blaze of renewed faith, revived hope, and resurrection life in their hearts. Guys, God's fire starter for burning hearts are the scriptures, the Bible. A.B. Simpson, born 1843, went to heaven in 1919. He said, quote, his word is not mere intellectual light, but spiritual life and celestial fire. Psalm 19, verse 7 tells us that God's word revives the soul. Application, if your heart is lifeless and cold tonight, then meet Jesus in the word tonight. Open the Bible and see God's promises and believe them and apply them, knowing that they are all yes and amen in Jesus. Listen, we need to meet Jesus in the word. And when that happens, God's Spirit rekindles the hearts of God's people with God's Word to burn and shine for God's Son. There is no substitute for the clear, sound, Jesus-focused exposition of God's Word to reignite our hearts with trust and passion for Jesus so that we can say, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us. 
G. Campbell Morgan, born 1863, went to heaven in 1945. He wrote, there is nothing the church of God needs more than this rekindling fire. We have become altogether faulty, faultless, and cold, splendidly null. In the case of these men, the fire was rekindled when they took the time to listen to Jesus. It was not that they talked to him, but as he talked to them, that they were conscious of this burning. The fire begins to burn when we cease our discussions and listen to the voice of the Lord. Everything was different now. So verses 33 through 35, so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Jesus transformed these two. And you can see it on their faces and hear it in their talk. Sadness, disappointment, and bewilderment no longer characterized their conversation. Now it was all about the risen and living Jesus. Their hearts were on fire. And these two couldn't keep the news about the risen and living Jesus to themselves. They had to tell others about him. As you understand, we worship on Sunday. Tomorrow morning, we're going to wake up and we are going to gather in two different churches tomorrow. You know why we gather on Sunday? To celebrate that Jesus is alive. Because he rose on Sunday. It's not just on Easter Sunday. It's every Sunday. Every Sunday we gather not only to celebrate and declare that we believe that Jesus is alive, but also to be reminded ourselves, hey, Jesus is alive. No matter what's going on with my life right now, Jesus is alive. Guys, this means that every Sunday we should be a celebration and not resemble a funeral. And if you heard the story of Martin Luther, Martin Luther struggled with doubt and depression, or not depression, but darkness and depression, emotionally. The great reformer 500 years ago, and one day he was in one of those really down times in his life, and his wife, Catherine, she came by, the dining room table where Martin was sitting dressed to go to a funeral. And Martin looked at his wife and said, Catherine, who died? And Catherine said, it's such a sad day because God has died. And Martin said, Catherine, you can't say such things. You you can't say that God has died. And then Catherine said, then Martin, stop living like it. Only a wife can get away with that. You know what? I have been to churches where it resembles more a funeral than it does resurrection celebration. May that not be the testimony of Calvary Chapel here and Christ the King Church there. On Sunday mornings, we remember and we declare and proclaim that Jesus is alive. I want to close with this. I'm going to have Joel come back up, and we're just going to move into a response time. But I want you to think when Jesus met these two. Remember, try to still imagine yourself as one of these two disciples. In their sadness, in their disappointment, 
every step they took, they were walking further and further away from Jerusalem as they were getting closer and closer to Emmaus. Listen, that's what sadness and disappointment does. Why is that such a big deal? Because Jerusalem was where the other disciples were. Jerusalem is where the empty tomb is. Jerusalem is where Calvary is located. And sometimes we can find ourselves that in our times of sadness that we start our own journey on our own road to Emmaus, that every step we walk further and further away from Jerusalem in order to get farther and farther away from there, we are getting further and further away from other disciples, the church, the local church, the believers. Think about all the people that have left the church I'm sure that some of you guys could remember people that used to be a part of your churches a year ago and they're nowhere to be found. And you, you, you bump into them at the grocery store and they just look like a mess and you're asking them, hey, why did you leave the church? And sadness, disappointment, frustration. And the moment that entered into their heart, they thought, you know what, there's really no reason to stay here. It's time to, time to leave. It's time to go on our road to Emmaus. And every step they took, every day that went past, they were further and further away from the community of believers that they once were with. And guys, when you start getting down that road, it only adds to the sadness and disappointment and despair. That's why Jesus came and met them on that road. And as Jesus brought new life to them, what did they do? They made a U-turn and ran back to Jerusalem to reconnect with all the other disciples of Jesus. But this time, it was under a new pretense. Jesus is alive. Maybe tonight, you're here because someone dragged you here. Out of desperation because... They love you. They care about you. And they see that you're on your own road to Emmaus and they want you to meet Jesus so that you can come back home. Others of you, you came out of curiosity. Never really heard a a Korean teach a Bible study before. Especially someone whose name resembles a a cowboy who should be over six feet tall, but he's a five-six, kind of chubby Korean. I'm a bit curious to see, like, what does that sound like? Or some of you, you came by faith. Like, you were not going to walk through those doors tonight because all all the stuff that's going on in your life right now, and and yet there was something that you thought, you know what, by faith, I just feel like I'm supposed to go to church tonight. And it was the grace of God that brought you into this room tonight. But you're here. That's the amazing thing. You're here here. And you might be on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus is now drawing near to you. And through this message, by reminding us about Jesus and the promises about his life, death, and resurrection, he's reminding you, listen, I haven't left you. I haven't broken any promises. And maybe you're realizing for the first time, oh my gosh, I've been getting mad at God for stuff he never promised me. Like, what was I getting mad at God for? 
He told me the world was broken. In fact, didn't Jesus say, in this world you will have tribulation? So what are we getting mad with Jesus for? Didn't he say, and yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution? Why are we getting mad with Jesus for? And yet he said, and yet be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Why am I not celebrating when he said he would do that for me? It's because you took the lens off of Scripture and you're trying to make sense of all the chaos through the lens of emotion. I'm sad. I'm really sad. So I'm going to try to understand my situation through my sadness. I'm frustrated and bitter, really frustrated and bitter. So I'm going to try to understand my situation through all of that. And that takes you down a really dark hole. But maybe tonight Jesus came and through this message, he takes the word of God and then he places the lens of scripture over your eyes And you see again, great and marvelous are your works, O God. Who has become the Lord's counselor? For of him and through him and to him are all things, for he works all things together for good to those that love God and to those that are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his Son, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. For for you believe in God, believe also in me, for in my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, but I will come back. I'll go and prepare a place for you and I will come back and I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And There is not one promise, not one word that has ever failed. And Jesus is bringing you back to Jerusalem, to the place of Calvary, to the place of the empty tomb, to the community of God's people. We're going to have a response time. If uh, I'm going to ask Matt and... Michael, if if I was to invite people that needed prayer to come forward, could we have some people come up? So you guys know who you are. If you serve in the church in prayer, if you're part of the prayer team or you, you minister in those areas of ministry, if any of you find yourself in that dark spot and you just need someone to lay hands on you and to pray for you, this is not a time where you need to give the whole backstory to your sorrow and sadness. This is not this is not a therapy session. All you have to do is come and just say, that describes me. That's all we need to know because Jesus knows. Because I think that sometimes we can get so caught up in what's wrong that we never get to what's right. Guys, I just know that Jesus knows everything that you've been going through because he's never left your side. And so without feeling like you have to give an explanation, you just come forward, and you don't even have to say anything. The fact that you come forward, people up front will know to lay hands on you and to pray for you. But I also want to encourage you, if you're the one who's laying hands on people and praying for people, 
without knowing the details, just pray as the Spirit leads because you know what? That carries a tone of prophecy. Prophecy is God speaking. Uh, it, there's like a, a, it's, it's God just moving by His Spirit. And I found that when, when people come forward for prayer and they, they don't give the specifics, but then the person starts praying and they start praying specific and it's exactly what they're going through, it encourages them to know, God, you really do know what's going on. And for you that are praying, if you sense that while you're praying for these people that God gives you a verse to share or a word of encouragement to give, without, without talking with them, just share it because that might be the word they need to hear. And so we're going to use that time. And maybe some of you that are on the prayer team or any of the pastors, if you're also in that spot, don't feel like, oh my gosh, like what are people going to think if I'm, I'm supposed to be praying for people, but no, you know what? I need to go to someone. I just need, without opening up my mouth and giving the details, I just want someone to lay hands on me and pray for me too. Let's do that. And we'll just see where the Lord takes us from there. Father, thank you again for your word, for the power of it, the clarity of it, the transforming ability that is that is demonstrated by it Lord I pray that tonight that all of us would know Christ who reignites burned out hearts and Lord at this time I pray that your spirit will lead us as we minister to one another And we pray that you'll lead us in our prayers and you'll lead us with words of encouragement so that people could experience the gift of the Holy Spirit called prophecy so that people could walk away saying, Jesus is with me, he knows me, and he's rekindling, he's reigniting my heart. So if you're part of the prayer team, will you come forward and just come on up, find some real estate here. You know, just sit on the stage somewhere. You could sit on the step on the stage. And then as the prayer team has come up, you that just need prayer, just come find one of these folks, one of these guys, one of these ladies, and, and they'll know. You don't have to say pray for me. They'll just know. You just come to them, they'll lay hands on you, and then they'll just begin to pray for you. All right, let's do that.